0: good morning. <laughs> and um, sad news, Remind um, remember the name of your children again? Um, Chase, Austin, Ma- Chase, Austin, and Michael. Father, grandfather died this past week, and he'd like us to remember them in, in prayer this week as they're working through the loss of their grandfather. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit would be with us. Fill our hearts with love and, and grace and goodness. And may our minds have discerning capacities to understand and know the truth. And we do want to uh, remember Chase, Austin, and, and Michael and this family as they are working through the grief. We know it's hard when, when children are young to, to come to terms with the loss of a loved one. We pray your spirit will be there to comfort them as they work through this. We pray in your holy name. Amen. <laughs> now, I've heard rumors, before we start the new quarterly, I've heard rumors around the community. That this class, and this has come from multiple sources, is composed of a group of people who don't think for
1: themselves.
0: (laughs) A group of people who have surrendered their thinking to to me, Dr. Jennings, and come each week so that you can be told what to think. (laughs) This was implied last week if you heard it. It was, it was an implication. Please, think for yourself, study it out for yourself. And the reason this, this allegation comes is because those who don't see the things the way we do don't believe we have any evidence for what we teach. And therefore, how could you possibly believe this if you're thinking because in their perspective, the evidence doesn't support it. So you must just let somebody else do your thinking for you. So, um, one way though to help avoid any suggestions that this might be true would be, if you're out in the community, uh, don't say things like, you know, Dr. Jennings said this week in
1: class.
0: (laughs) I don't need any credit. Uh, And you know, how many times have I told you in here, uh, don't believe anything because I say it. I've told this over and over again, don't believe because I say it. Take what I say, investigate it, look at the evidence, uh, come to understand it yourself, and then when you're convinced that you understand and you know it's the right, then make it your own and present the truth. You know, the Bible says, or the evidence says. But you don't need to reference me in any of this stuff. I'm not the authority on any of this. Okay. We are doing our new quarterly, Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And uh, the title for this week's lesson is uh, In the Loom of Heaven. But before we start, I thought we'd look at the introduction for the quarterly. In the introduction for the quarterly, uh, the first paragraph says, We are awash in symbols, our language, our words, hence, our thoughts even, are symbols, representations of things other than themselves. The letters of the word dog, D-O-G, aren't a dog or any dog. They're a symbol composed of type on a page made of letters and sounds that no matter how construed, never can be what they stand in for. The word dog in every tongue and script represents something bigger than itself. I think that's a great point. And I want us, as we go through, to remember that the Bible is awash in symbols. And what is the danger when we use symbols?
2: Forget the meaning.
0: That we forget the meaning of the symbol. Or or misconstrue the meaning of the symbol. This is the danger. And you're going to find, as we go through this quarterly, much of the difficulty that is happening in Christianity is that the symbol has been misconstrued in many cases to mean something other than it was intended to mean. So we want to come back. I'll give you an example. Uh, the original, uh, after the flood, God gave a symbol. What symbol did God give? And that symbol that he gave was to represent or symbolize his love, his promise, his grace, his protection. And today when we're out and we see a, a flag, a rainbow flag or a rainbow bumper sticker, what does it symbolize? Gay pride. When you see the rainbow flag and the rainbow bumper stickers, it's a gay pride flag. Yes. The symbol has been taken over and is being redefined. Same symbol. Now, we have to decide. Is it representing God's promise of love for, our, for uh, his protection and oversight, or is it representing something else? Same symbol can represent more than one thing. So, in the loom of heaven, our memory verse for this week, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's Romans 4, 7. And the question, what does it mean? The words are symbols. And the words are describing, not only are the words themselves symbols, but the words are describing a symbolic expression. So what does it actually mean?
1: Well, in, this, in the account of Zechariah, the high priest, his filthy rags were taken away, and he was given the robe of Christ's
0: righteousness. Okay, so she's describing another symbolism in the book of Zechariah, where the high priest garments, filthy rags were removed from him, and clean uh, clothes or high priestly vestments were put on, so another symbolic expression. Romans, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Do sins get covered? Is God's plan of salvation nothing more than the great cosmic cover-up? Is it a great cosmetic, covering up defects and blemishes? Is that what's going on? God, the great cos- cosmetologist. <clears throat> Is he a great makeup artist? Yes.
2: Is that the right translation of the word? <laughs>
0: I didn't take the time to check the Greek for this, this week. I didn't think it was necessary for us to do that. I, I think we're, we're pressing the idea, though, what does it mean to have our sins covered? Yes? Oh, it
2: just kind of dawned on me maybe everyone else figured this out long ago. But maybe this is why most Protestants take this position, because instead of uh, having to overcome, they just have them covered over.
0: I, I think that's, I think you've got some insight there. Yeah, it's much easier, isn't it? To, rather than to heal something, just to cover over something. Yeah, but nothing gets better when you cover over it, does it? No. No, yes? Um,
1: if you go back to where he's quoting from, which is Psalms 32, the very next line after um, the full quote is, and in whose spirit is no deceit.
0: Uh, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Okay, so, so in order to cover sin, there, there's a change in spirit? Well, this is my paraphrase of Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 7, our memory verse. My paraphrase goes, Happy are those... Whose wicked minds are restored to perfect purity, whose selfishness is eradicated. What do you think about that? Yes.
1: Tim, I don't think it's really important. I remember when you were a little boy, sometimes you had to get spanked and
0: used No way.
1: And used to eat those little dust balls on the floor.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing.
1: Baby crawling around. Okay. But it's not important now. It's not important. He's grown up into a fine man. And I don't remember half of the stuff
0: he did. Well, you remembered enough, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right, so first paragraph moving on. Uh, Christ is the sinner's substitute and surety. He has obeyed the law in the sinner's place, in order that the sinner may believe in him and grow up into him into all in all things to the full stature of, of a man in Jesus in Christ Jesus, and thus become complete in him. Christ has made reconciliation for sin and has borne all its nominee, reproach, and punishment. And yet, while bearing sin, he has brought in everlasting righteousness, so that the believer is spotless before God. The time comes when it is asked, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the answer is, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. He who has the spotless robe of righteousness woven in the loom of heaven, in which not a thread... That sinful humanity can claim is at the right hand of God to clothe his believing children in the perfect garments of his righteousness. Those who are saved in the kingdom of God will have nothing of which to boast in themselves. The praise and glory will all flow back to God, the giver of salvation. That's out of Youth Instructor, December 6, 1894. What do you all think? Yes.
1: The robe of Christ's righteousness means that we take his character and it becomes ours. His mind becomes
0: ours. Margaret is always so right on top of things, isn't she? <laughs> yes, thank you, Margaret. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Even
1: more than that, we belong to him. It's like our own children. We, they do all kinds of stupid things like your mom was talking about. But <laughs> <laughs> mind it work. We love our children despite that. It's like we think of them as perfect, even though they're still growing and maturing. It's, in our eyes, they're perfect do you think that
0: has any bearing on it at all? Apparently no. Well, if your infant child has Tay-Sachs disease, has spinal bifida, has congenital heart defect, um, has leukemia, uh, do you look at them and think they're perfect? Or do you look at them and recognize they're not, and and if it's in your ability, begin measures to they fix... A
1: disease, but they're still perfect because they're yours
0: and you want to heal them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, now, wait a minute. They're not perfect. Well,
1: they're perfect in the fact that they're your child, that you would do okay.
0: anything for them to be... They're save. perfectly your child who's defective and diseased. Okay. <laughs> so they're perfectly yours, but they're defective and diseased. Yeah, but because because like this is blood. exactly how we are in God's eyes as but I it see it.
1: Loving yeah, a, a child who said. isn't curable, like, say they have Down syndrome. There isn't anything you can do to cure that child right now, but you love them just as much as you love your normal children.
0: So, so, so you're making the point that the problem in, in sin is not a, a question of God's love for us.
1: No, it is. It hurts the child to be have Down syndrome. And you would, if you could, you would help them to get well. But sometimes there isn't even a cure for that. God's love alone does not make us perfect.
0: No. So we're, so we're mixing metaphors here. Symbols. We're mixing metaphors. One is God's love and his relationship and his attitude and, and his regard for us, regardless of how sick we are, doesn't change. The other is the reality and the condition of the sinner themselves. The child themselves. The child is not perfect. The child is defective, but the attitude of the parent is not d- dependent upon the perfection of the child. The child doesn't have to be pe- perfect for the parent to have perfect love for the child. So we've mixed two things here, and it's good that you've clarified this, so we can separate those now and recognize that the problem was never an attitudinal problem with God. Our sin didn't change God's attitude towards us, did it? No, no. But did we get changed to an imperfect state? Yes. Okay, so then we read back here about the sinners, Christ... Is the sinner's substitute and surety? The one sentence I want to pull out first was: Notice this sentence in the middle it says, "Christ has made reconciliation for sin and bore all all its ignominy, reproach, and punishment." Where, according to this sentence, does the punishment of sin arise? Notice what the sentence says. It says, "For made the reconciliation for sin and borne all its punishment." What is the it's referring to? Sin. 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 The wages of sin is? Yeah. Sin. when full girl brings forth. If you don't read carefully, you might have drawn a different conclusion through this passage, which many do. They read, ah, sin has to be punished. Well, no, sin punishes. Unremedied sin. Unremedied disease brings a punishment, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um... Here we have the covering metaphor again, the robe woven in the loom of heaven without a thread of human devising. Um, is it the what I've said before, the candy-coated rotten apple theory? No. Take a rotten apple and stick it in the candy coating and then set it on the shelf. It looks just as good and, and nice as all the others, right? Is it? No. No, is that the, is that the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers the rotten sinner so that our hearts are still rotten to the core, but when the Father looks at us, He sees perfect candy on the outside? No. No, that's what, that's what many put forth. You listen for it. Be critical next time you hear this metaphor. Father can't see our wickedness and sin because we're covered by the robe of His Son's righteousness. Is it just a paint covering over rotten timber? Or a band-aid over necrotic tissue. Is that what this covering is? It's not, guys. It really isn't. So jump to Monday's lesson. And in Monday's lesson, the second paragraph, it says, what hope then do we have? A great hope, actually. And the theological term for that is imputed righteousness. What does it mean? Very simply, it's the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness that was woven in the loom of heaven and granted to us by faith. Imputed righteousness means the substitution of his sinless life for our sinful life. It is credited to us, outside of us, and it covers us completely. We are viewed in God's eyes as if we have never sinned, as if we have always been completely obedient to God's commands, as if we were as holy and righteous as Jesus himself. Notice, as you read this, according to the authors, where is the effect of Christ's righteousness being applied or impacting?
1: Outside.
0: Notice it's God's view that's being changed. God's eyes are being changed. Think of this serious distortion here. Yes?
1: Would that, in effect, negate the purpose of justification later, of changing in any way? Because if, if God sees us as perfect, then why would he come back and say well, you know, and point out sin in our lives so that we can address it and by his grace fix it and so, overcome it.
0: What do you all think about that? They would say no. They would say that, and they're going to come to the lesson about two sides of the same coin, that this is the imputed side where God sees us as righteous. And then there comes the second part, the imparted righteousness where then God works and to fix all the brokenness in our heart. And this is theological dissection and an idea created in the mind of theologians. So here's what is generally missing from this idea that we just read from our quarterly. The robe woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. Absolutely true. It is. They quote it, and then they quote it, as I just said, as a covering, God's eyes get changed. His viewpoint, what he sees. Uh, what, <laughs> the metaphor that you've, you've heard me use before is, is uh, because some talk about God as being a policeman in the sky. You know, you're out riding and around and the and a, and a police officer has his radar on you. You feel a little tense and anxious. You feel safe and secure. We don't have any stress, those of us who have accepted Christ, because Christ is in the car and he's a heavenly radar jammer. And when the Father shoots his radar at us, he can't see how fast we're going because Christ blocks the radar signal, you see? this is what th- This is basically what this is saying here. The view of the Father gets changed. His eyes see us as holy when we're not. His radar says we're going the right speed when we're not. That's what this theory says. Are you telling me you believe that God will declare us to be righteous when in fact he knows we're unrighteous? And they said yes. And I said, doesn't that make God out to be a liar? They said no, because God can't lie, so he can say it even though it's not true. (laughs) Do you see the inherent contradictions? Well, this is out of... The same person who, who wrote this youth instructor quote in our, in our opening of our lesson wrote this out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. It says, The robe, woven in the loom of heaven, okay, here we've got that same metaphor, same imagery, has in it not one thread of human devising. That sounds familiar. Sounds the same thing. Christ, in his humanity, wrought out a perfect character. And this character he offers to impart to us, all our righteousness or filthy, filthy rags, everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin, but the Son of God was manifest to take away our sins, and in him was no sin. Sin is defined by transgression of the law, first John three, five. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of himself, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, the law is written in my heart. By his perfect obedience he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's command. Now get these words, this is what's left out of this other view. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then... As the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. Is that a completely different perspective than what we just read over here? Yes. The reason God sees his perfect robe of righteousness when he looks at us is because, as the new covenant says in Hebrews 8:10, I will write my law where? on your heart and mind. This is what it means to have the law written on your heart and mind, to have the thoughts brought into harmony with His, the will merge with His. This is the new covenant. This is regeneration. This is rebirth. This is recreation. This is having the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. This is the whole plan of salvation to regenerate us into Christ's likeness. Then when the Father looks at us, why does He see the robe of Christ's righteousness? Because it's covering us because it lives within. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives, Christ lives in me. It's a reality. And this other theory actually obstructs the victorious life that God would have for us. Because we live in this, in this legal fear zone. And I, I, it's in my first book. I uh, remember a, a, an Adventist guy who had a heart attack. And his heart stopped and he was in the ER and, they, and he remembers being on the table where the, his, he would go unconscious and they would shock his heart and he would wake up and he would remember this happened like three times and in and out of consciousness every time he woke up he told me he thought one thought I hope there isn't some sin I forgot to confess that will keep me out of heaven. Think about it. Yeah. So is there a difference between covering over and actually transforming a sinner? Yeah. Is there a difference between getting legal credit in a record book and getting transformed? Absolutely. In fact, the theory typically given leads us astray. It undermines our, our ability to live. They talk about uh, Christ's perfect law keeping being applied to our records. Well, let's use this language for a minute. And I want you to think with me. Reason it out with me. If we use this language, Christ's perfect law keeping being applied to our records. How? Next question, how? How could that happen? Well, next question, if you're not sure, what is recorded in the heavenly records? Get this quote. This is out of um, TSB, page 62. Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist, what do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Another metaphorical statement. Question, what's being recorded in the record books of heaven? Your character. So, if we use this, that Christ's law-keeping gets written into our record books, what is the route or avenue that necessarily must take for it to be written in your record book? Transformation of your character. If it doesn't happen in your character, it doesn't happen in your record book. And what this other theory does is it bypasses your character. This is, this is the distortion. This other theory says Christ is in heaven dealing directly with record books and not dealing with your character. And changing your record books while your character remains unchanged. Well, this is a metaphor. You've heard it before, but it, I think it fits here. Your child is dying of a terminal illness, metastatic uh, cancer all over the body. The, the doctors have told you there's no hope. You hear of a doctor out west where everybody gets a clean bill of health. Everybody goes, comes away with a clean bill of health. You're excited. You see if you can get an appointment. You do. You fly your child out there bringing thick stacks of medical records showing in great detail all the pathology, all the uh, MRI scans, the lab reports, all the uh, biopsies, everything showing the the extent of of this terminal illness. And you hand the doctor the record and he opens the record up, removes all the record of disease, sticks in blank white sheets of paper, hands it back to you and says, now, no more record of disease. You're going home. Are you happy? Well, we've got a clean bill of health. The record says, the record says you're, you're healthy now. Is that, is that working for you guys? This is what this other theory is teaching. That Christ is in heaven changing your record without changing you. It's a distortion. Now, instead, the doctor looks at the record and sees the great extent of the recorded sickness in your child. And then the doctor leaves the record just as it is gets up and goes over to your child and begins to intervene with a remedy that will put the cancer into remission. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And now the record book shows the disease. Now the record book shows the intervention in your child's life. And now the record book will show that your child's cancer is in remission. That's how our Christ perfect law keeping gets put into our heavenly records. When we as John 6 says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Unless we ingest, unless we partake, unless we internalize into our hearts and minds Jesus Christ, then our characters don't get changed, therefore our records don't get changed. Yes, Dean.
2: When I look at the Christian world, I see a lot of this talk about Christ changing you and all this stuff. How is that woven in to this model where they have this covering over of your sin? This sins being erased out of the record books. I mean, is, is it like more of a, an arbitrary amount of time that momentarily at the time of your, your conversion that, oh, now God sees you now, but now I'm going to start working into you? Is that how they work it in?
0: I think you should ask some of those guys those questions. <laughs> really, because I, I find it convoluted and contradictory. But let's just, let's just t- because we get criticized, somebody's going to come back if I don't close this, this, this gap here. I'm going to close it for you. Well, now you're teaching a work system. You've got to be perfect, okay? Let me ask you this. If your child goes to the doctor with a terminal disease and the doctor is working and intervening with treatments in your child, is your child healing themselves? No. Is your child working to get well? Is it your child's efforts and energy that's transforming them? No. No, okay? It's not our work to fix ourselves, to heal our characters, to restore us. It's our work simply to trust the doctor. That's what we're called to do, to have faith, to trust in, in him.
1: let say you're the patient, not your child. And he recommends that you eat a healthy lifestyle, you exercise, you get plenty of rest, you get rid of alcohol and tobacco in your life so that the chemotherapy can work better. Those are your acts of change that you would take on into your life to help that process happen,
0: right? Yes. And so we are wanting to have our characters change from selfishness to selflessness. That's what we want to experience, yes? So we come to trust God. If we trust him and we say, God, have your way with me and help me make an exceptionally good profit this month in my pornography ring. Selfish. Can we get well if we're doing that? Yeah. Can You, you see my, my point here? Yeah. Do we have choices to make? Yes. Do our choices result in the healing remedy that transforms us? No, our choices result in the partaking of the healing remedy, not the healing remedy. The healing remedy was that robe woven in the loom of heaven, procured only at Christ. But our choices are the partaking or participation in the remedy, not the remedy itself.
1: It's believing that we have the remedy working in us, and that's changing our desires, right? Right.
0: That, that's absolutely right. When we come to trust Him, there's a supernatural work that begins in us, and we become sick. It's no, it's, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's sickening. Come on. Haven't you guys experienced that? That change of heart where something you used to do before you came to know Christ is repulsive to you now? Mm -hmm. Well, how did that change come about? You didn't do it by a, a matter of work. That's a, that's the work of grace. That's the work of the Holy Spirit changing your heart. But it happened through your opening your heart and trust. Did the Holy Spirit force his way in and force this change upon you? No. Yes.
1: Okay, in Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Does that mean death?
0: Well, what is wrath? Paul already defines. You're reading Romans chapter 5. Is that chapter 5? Yeah. Paul defines in chapter 1 what wrath is. And this is what happens when you lift a text. But go back and let Paul define it. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 18, the Greek there is active present tense, meaning in Paul's day, right now in AD 65 when he's writing this, God's wrath is being revealed today. It's not God's wrath one day if the judgment will be revealed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's revealed today. And then he goes down and tells you why God's wrath comes six times in the next um in the next 13 verses, he tells you six times why God's wrath comes, because they didn't think the truth of God worthwhile to retain. They exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. Therefore, in verse 24, 26, and 28, God, Paul says what God's action is. If you reject the knowledge of God, if you prefer your own images, therefore, God does something. Therefore,
1: gives them up.
0: God gave them up. Therefore, God let them go. Therefore, God gave them up. And tying it all together in chapter 4, verse 25, check it out, chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus, who became our substitute and experiencing God's wrath, chapter 4, verse 25, same exact Greek word as in verse 24, 26, and 28 of chapter 1, therefore, but the, but the English translations always subtly twist it, so it makes it hard to see the connection. This is, therefore, God delivered him over. But it's actually, therefore, God gave him up. And Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you... For rain fire down from heaven to torture me to punish me for sin.
1: Forsaken.
0: Now, why have you given me up? Why have you let me go? Okay? This is what God's wrath is.
1: Well, in verses 6 and 7, it talks about Christ dying and men, righteous men dying and so forth like this. So I just figured that's what that would mean, that he would be saved from that death. Yes. This would be a wrath.
0: That's right. We would be saved from God letting go. Now, if, where do we derive our source of life? From God. How many of us can live if we were 100% totally, completely disconnected from God? The wrath of God, letting go, results in? Okay, yeah. He doesn't have to inflict it. Okay. So, next paragraph in our lesson, says, Paul said in Romans 4, 2, that if Abraham were justified by works, he could have boasted. However, Abraham believed God, and therefore he was accounted righteous. Jesus invites us to come to him in simple belief. Sinners, though though we are, and he will provide his robe of perfect perfection, the perfect righteousness that he wrought out in his own life while here in the flesh. That's known as imputed righteousness, and it's the only solution for the dile- dilemma. So graphically depicted in Isaiah 64 and Romans chapter 3 and just want you to think it through. Was Abraham recognized as righteous before he trusted God or after he trusted God?
1: After.
0: And the Bible says that. The lesson says that. Now, what is our natural, according to the scriptures, our natural state of heart attitude sends sin toward God? It says our hearts are enmity in Romans. We're at war. Our natural heart does not trust God, right? So think this through. Did Abraham... Was Abraham recognized as righteous by God before or after his heart changed? After. Was he recognized as righteous while his heart distrusted God, or did he come to trust God and then was recognized as righteous? Which was it?
1: Trust God and then recognize.
0: Notice, this, this whole idea of God recognizing us as righteous happens after there's a change of heart in the believer, not before. And this other idea tries to imply that the recognition of righteousness comes before the believers changed. But it's not. And the Greek word translated imputed or cre- credited uh, as righteous in the in the uh, Romans chapter 4 verse 2 is logizomeiae, which uh, according to the Strong's Concordance in the Greek, uh, basically says this. It means to reckon. Inward, count up or weigh the reasons to deliberate by reckoning up all the reasons to gather, to infer, to consider, to take into account, to weigh, to meditate. And this is what it says. This word deals with reality. If I logizomei or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. This word refers to facts, not suppositions. So when God recognized Abraham is righteous. Was he righteous? Yes. Because what does righteousness mean? I want to get this. It's a relational thing. We are naturally at enmity, at war, distrusting, opposed, in opposition against God. That's the carnal heart. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Abraham was changed to the point where he trusted God. He's on God's side now. So God now recognizes him as righteous. In other words, he is now set right. With God. His heart is now right with God. He's no longer opposed to God. He's no longer warring with God. He's no longer against God. He's on God's side. He's now working for God. Does that mean all of his old habit patterns have been worked out? Does that mean all of his neural circuits are now perfect? Does that mean all of his human inclinations are now uh, cleansed? No. What it means is that his heart is on God's side. Amen. That his heart is for God, not against God. And
1: and
0: that's the thief on the cross. That's the
1: He was saved, his heart was changed.
0: And that that's exactly right. And so his heart was now set right with God again. And the outcome from that is inevitable. When your heart is right with God and you trust him and you open yourself to the spirit's influence, well, the spirit will cleanse, restore, and heal you. It's an inevitable outcome once you are set right with God in heart. And that's why he was recognized as righteous. This other idea that is put forth, that righteousness, uh, he was recognized or accounted righteous while he still was unrighteous, is a fraud. I'm going to tell you, I will say it loudly and clearly, a fraud. I've told them on the hill, it's a fraud. They disagree with me. They actually say, no, God says we're righteous even though we're not righteous. And I say, it makes that up. be a liar, they disagree with me. They say, no, God can do it because he's God and so he can't lie.
2: Is it possible that their definition of righteousness means you have to live a perfect, Perfect. totally sinless life?
0: Uh, We've talked about that. We've talked about that. You'll have to ask them what they mean. (laughs) (laughs) But... We'll probably tell you to read a book. But they also, they also take, as the lesson does, this idea of imputed righteousness as being separate from the actual change in the person. Did you notice that the lesson implies imputed righteousness is separate and distinct from us. Did you hear it? Okay, I'll, I can read that again. Imputed righteousness means the substitution of his sinless life for our sinless life. It is credited to us outside of us and it covers us completely. This is this idea, something happening in the books of heaven but not happening in us. Listen to some quotes from one of the founders of our church. I, I love the perspective of history. This is out of God's Amazing Grace, page 181. And I'm going to give you several of these. And you ask, answer the question, is she describing something that's happening away from us in some accounting system in heaven, uh, the, the, the legal accounting roles, or is this describing something within us? Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin for all heaven with its limitless resources has been placed at our command. We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. God pronounces us just and treats us as just. What does that sound like to you, the imputed righteousness did? Was it counted us or made us righteous? Okay, here's another one. Oh, and by the way, what's the biblical metaphor for sin? Remember when Miriam was arguing and Moses and, leprosy. and they, if they had it, they couldn't be in the camp of Israel. Okay, so, so leprosy is a metaphor for sin, is it not? In Scripture. And, and it was acted out. If you had leprosy, you couldn't be among the people. until Now, When did Jesus ever cleanse lepers? Yes. yes. And then after he cleansed them, what did he always tell them to do? Show yourself. Go show, you- Go show yourself to the priest for what purpose?
1: Be
0: cleansed, to, be, to be declared righteous. or to be cle- Did the declaring of righteousness come before or after they were cleansed? After. After. Notice, this declaring aspect of righteousness before we're cleansed is part of the wine of Babylon, I'm going to tell you. It's the distortion that keeps people living in sin while they have false security. I'm cleansed because I have an accounting of my book in heaven, but I'm still a leper in heart. It's a distortion. It's part of the the wine. In in Scripture, they were never declared righteous until they were cleansed first. Our hearts have to be set right with God and then he recognizes us as being right. Here's some more. It's another paragraph, page 96. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated. What does it mean to be assimilated? Become part of. Become an integral part of. Okay. So morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Does that sound like something happening in record books separate from us? I'm telling you, it's a distortion. And they hold to it and hug to it and, and attack us because we think that there's actually a real work of Holy Spirit happening in the heart to change us. How about this one? Our High Calling, page 364. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Does that sound like something happening outside of us or within us?
2: Most of Christianity believes the, the former, that it happens totally outside. In fact, a, a lot of Christians believe
0: that it doesn't matter what you are inside. It just, as long as you're covered by Jesus. I'm not defending it. In yeah. Sentence, but it is. What is the wine of Babylon? Confusion. <laughs> false teachings. False ideas. False constructs. False, yeah, that people believe. Now, just think of history. Daniel eight fourteen. 2,300 days, and then 2,300 years, sanctuary will be cleansed. 490 years, cut off for your people to do away with the oblations and sacrifices. So um, God is looking down through the corridors of time. And then then there's also the prophecy of the little horn power war against the saints, right? This whole thing. This is an overview. 490 years from now, Messiah is going to come. He's going to do what's necessary to save man from sin. There's going to be a little horn power that's going to counterattack after Christ's mission. Paul recognizes that in Thessalonians. Thessalonians says... Don't think the Lord has come. He hasn't come uh, until the man of lawlessness, the man of sin arises, the man of perdition. And what does he say in Thessalonians this man of perdition is going to do? He's going to set himself up somewhere. Where's he going to set himself up? In God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, is Paul telling us that after Christ's death resurrection, ascension into heaven, that this man of perdition goes up into heaven, knocks Jesus off of his throne in heaven, sets himself up in heaven in the heavenly sanctuary, and claims himself to be God up there? Yeah. No. no. Where does Paul say this man set himself up? This, this is the same power as the little horn power that wars against the saints. Now he wars against the saints, and, and it says in Daniel chapter 7, until something happens. Until the Ancient of Days comes and does something. And the NIV says, pronounces judgment in favor of the saints. So we get this investigative judgment in heaven. He's sitting in the courts, books are open, and Jesus' blood is applied to our right. He looks into records. Do you have the blood of Jesus on your account? God pronounces judgment in your favor, and this is how it's put forth. The King James says, until judgment was given to the saints. Given to the saints. The actual Hebrew means to impart. That's what the word means, to impart something. So think it through. Second Corinthians 10-5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Where is such a war being fought? In our minds. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Satan is the father of, where do lies have their power? Where does truth set you free? In the mind. mind. Okay, I'm telling you, this is a battle right here. And this little horn power, so Jesus comes to do what's necessary for our salvation, reveal the truth about God, expose Satan as a fraud and a liar, to win the victory over human sinfulness and restore righteousness into mankind, to set us free from sin. The little horn power wages back with a complete distorted representation of what Christ did at the cross. A complete pagan idea of what Christ did at the cross. And paganism at its heart you have an angry, wrathful, or distant, or uncaring deity that has to have something done to induce or influence the deity to give blessings. So we offer sacrifices, bring our first fruits, um, um, offer our children. We, we do things to influence the deity. Well, where, how did the little horn power fight back? Well, this is history. This is just history, guys. After the church was persecuted, then Constantine converted. He converted because his heart was changed? Or politics? And then you're a a pagan worshiping your pagan deity and the the crier from Rome comes that the official religion of the Roman Empire now is Christian. What are you today? You're a Christian Christian today. What do you know about Christ? So you take all of your pagan symbols and you put Christian labels on them. This is what happened to Christianity. It's fact, guys. It's fact. Okay? Christianity became paganized. And this idea, uh, in one major religion of the world, we have an angry wrathful God who must punish sin, and we have Jesus, Mary, and all the saints pleading to him, mercy, mercy. Well, Protestant Reformation came along years later, and we started removing some of the distortions layer by layer by layer by layer by layer, but guess what has remained in Protestantism? which remain in Protestantism is the heart of paganism, which is an angry wrathful God who must be appeased by the blood of his son. And Jesus is in heaven pleading his blood to the father. So the father and stands between us and his wrath, to hold back His wrath. It's the, it's, it's the wine of Babylon. It's the distortion. And so God is looking down through time and he's saying 2300 years are going to go by before enough truth is recovered to cleanse my temple. Because the little man of sin is coming and he's going to set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. But there's coming a time when the cleansing of the temple will begin. That time was 1844. And truth has been trying to go forward and Satan has been furious like a furious lion because he knows now the message and the truth is available to cleanse minds from all that distortion. And so he's working like never before to silence and suppress those who present the truth to set minds free. And this is our privilege. Our privilege at this time in history is to take a message to set minds free, uh, the thing we're talking about in here today. So let me give, give you another one. This is out of That I May Know Him. Page 206. He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What do you think that statement means? Who's the workmanship of God? And removing the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship, is that from the record books of the workmanship? Or is it from us? Okay. Remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God and reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul. What does that mean? In record books or within the believer? Elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. Get this, guys. This idea that the imputed righteousness is, as the lesson says, means the substitution of a sinless life for our sinless life, it is credited to us, outside of us, and covers us completely, is is a lie. It happens in us. And when it happens in us, because what's recorded in the record books of heaven that we read earlier? So when it happens in us, then our record books are cleansed. But it's only through cleansing us that our record books get cleansed. Does that make sense? Is there an actual difference between the legal accounting of a person righteous and actually transforming the believer into righteousness?
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. So, how do we understand Romans chapter 4, 20 through 24? Here's my paraphrase. This is about Abraham. Yet even though, from human understanding, the promise seemed hopeless, Abraham did not waver in his confidence in God, but praised God as he realized God was able to miraculously fulfill his promise. This unwavering trust in God in the face of scientific evidence to the contrary, remember his wife was how old and he was how old, was recognized as righteousness because this trust replaced distrust and opened Abraham's mind to receive the endowment of a new heart, right motives, and Christ-like principles established by God's recreative power. This record of his trust being recognized as righteousness is not written merely for Abraham, but for everyone who trusts in God. For everyone who trusts in God, who raised Jesus from the dead, is recognized as righteous because distrust in God is gone, and through trust he receives the endowment of a perfect heart and new motives created within. That's our privilege. God restores, writes his law, the new covenant experience within us. We receive, we become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. Isn't that awesome? Yeah.
1: Can you define character? Is that your thoughts, the beliefs that you hold, the things that you want to strive to be a part of your life, not necessarily the acts that you do from day to day, but your desire to be
0: a I would say it's the thoughts, feelings combined that define the secret intents of the heart. Because it really is the motive, not the action.
1: Right,
0: that's
2: what I'm... Yeah. Okay. So in actuality, there is no difference between the words imputed and imparted.
0: Um, I think those those words are used by theologians to make a distinction. Um, Ellen White doesn't differentiate them.
2: Because to me they sound the same. Yeah. Like him put
0: it. Now, the way, the way some people will describe it is this way. When Adam sinned, he ran and hid because he was afraid. How did God approach him? Did God approach him with anger and wrath or with grace and with love and gentleness. God was treating him with grace and love. And some will call that God's action, or he was imputing by his behavior and treatment of him, um, righteousness. In, in, in other words, God's was flowing from him an attitude of love and grace. And some will call that the imputed righteousness, which I think there is an element to that because that has a, a winning effect. It, it, it transforms us. It wins us back. The woman caught in adultery at Jesus' feet after he dispatched the crowd, neither do I condemn you. His treatment toward her, he imputed toward her in his attitude and treatment of her, and that then broke through her fears and insecurities, won her to trust, and transformed her. But notice, it's a transforming reality, an experiential reality. It's not something happening outside. It's happening in the context of our relation with God. So some will argue imputed is God's imputing to us in his actions, attitudes, and treatments towards us. His grace, his love, his acceptance, his desire for our healing, rather than having a punitive judgmental attitude towards us. And I like that idea too. I think that's part of it. In the last paragraph, it says, Imagine it like this. Jesus strips away your old stained garments, your filthy rags, wraps you in the robe of his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness, his perfect record of law-keeping. He wraps you in it and then whispers in your ear, Now you are perfect. I have given you my perfection. Please wear this robe and don't let it slip away from you. Now, I, I, that can actually, absolutely be understood in a way that is just so powerful and true and transforming, but you can also use those same language to describe something else, can't you? Yeah, yeah it's symbolism. Remember, we talked about the rainbow earlier. Symbolism can mean uh, different things, and we have to ask the meaning. Friday's lesson, I want to jump to Friday. Before we uh, read the paragraph from Friday's lesson, let me ask you a couple questions. Do we all agree in here, and if you don't, I really want you to say you don't agree, but these are kind of almost rhetorical questions, so I think everybody's going to agree. Do we agree that God himself, his nature, his character never changes? He's t- the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is constant and never changes. Yes. Yes. Do we agree that God's eternal law can never change? Yes. Yes. Okay. Do we agree that when man sinned, man, man got changed? Yes. 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 And if all three of those are true, then think it through with me. Okay? God can't change. He's the same forever. His law can't change. It's constant. Man changed now out of harmony with God, terminal in sin, dead in trespass and sin, as scripture describes. Then, if all those things are true, if Christ is going to save, God through Christ is going to save mankind, where must effective change be applied? In, in man. Okay? Christ's mission on earth was to effect a change in mankind, not a change in God or a change in God's law. And traditionally, the way things, explanations go, he had to pay the penalty of the law. He had to appease God's anger and wrath. Remember what I read to you out of page 67 of this book a moment ago? He had to die in order to turn away God's wrath, affecting change. Or what we read in the lesson, he had to affect God's eyes. God sees us differently. Do you notice how they are taking Christ's mission and trying to affect change on the law or on God, which can never change? Christ's entire mission, guys, was to affect change in mankind to affect our attitude towards God and ultimately to actually destroy Satan's principles in mankind that are in mankind and replace it with God's law of love. He came to achieve that. He achieved it in his journey. He took, he who knew no sin became sin. He took our iniquities, our terminal condition upon himself for the purpose of eradicating and curing mankind in his personhood, the robe woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. He did. What we could not do, he cured this condition as a human with a human brain. It's so much bigger than this other thing. So much more comprehensive. So, anyway, if that's true, then let's read the last, let's read the first paragraph in Friday's lesson and ask the question. Well, let's ask the question, what does it mean? And notice what's being described as what the law requires here. This is out of Desire of Ages, page 762. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life, a perfect character, and this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and, notice, developed a perfect character. You see, God already had a perfect character. This was not he developed a perfect divine character. No, he developed a perfect Human character. That's what he developed. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed, notice through what? Through the legal payment to pay for their crimes. No, it's not what it says. Remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Romans 3.25, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He forbear. He did not exact vengeance. He did not require payment. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. Imbues, that would be like imputes or imparts. This is the same thing. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believers in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Why is this just? Why is it that the law cannot be changed. Why is it that, that God must save us in the, for the same reason that a doctor cannot heal a patient outside the laws of health? We can't do it. We have to heal patients only inside the laws of health. We have to bring the patient who is outside the law of health back in harmony with the law. And so we are outside God's design or law for life and Christ came to put mankind back in harmony with the law that he built the universe to run upon. Yes,
1: why is it that we as Christians seem to need God to punish people in order to be just, to kill them in order to be just? Where does that come
0: from? It comes from the wine of Babylon, straight up. It comes from believing the distorted God concept, believing the idea that justice requires punishment. What's it say in Desire of Ages 761? Mm-hmm. That uh, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God cannot be obeyed, that um, if man should sin, uh, God could not be just in forgiving the sinner. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. It
1: comes from our self-centeredness. Yes. Wanting others to suffer, that's our self-centeredness being manifest.
0: It does. It comes from the selfishness, the, the infection of sin in the heart. We actually gain some type of pleasure in making another person pay for something they did to us. I'll uh, we'll close with this. I, had a, I was sharing these ideas with a, uh, a guy who was a driver for me when I was down in Florida doing some speaking. And he was telling me, I was talking about God's kingdom of love, his principles of love, and, he, and, and about not seeking vengeance and these types of things. He said, I don't know. He said, if somebody broke into my house, said so, so some drug addict broke into my house and was threatening my family, and I had a gun, I'd shoot him. And I said, all right, let's take that. Let's say a 21-year-old crazed guy, psychotic out of his head because he's high on PCP, breaks into your house, and he's threatening your family, and it's your firstborn son. Now what do you do? And he said, I don't like you very much. (laughs) You see, that's God's situation. We are all his children. I said, if you did have a gun, would you shoot to kill or shoot to wound in order to save them both? He said, I'd shoot to wound. I said, so you don't want to hurt your son, do you? You don't want to kill him. You don't want to punish him. You don't want to take vengeance on him. No, I want to save him. That's God's attitude toward all of us. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not like the enemy has made you out to be. Lord, there are, there's a, there's a war going on and it's, and it's heating up. It's getting intense. Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom, discernment, hearts of love and grace that we can present these truths in gracious ways and loving ways. May may we be patient with those who who have believed their whole life this other thing. But may your truth go forward. May the sword of truth be wielded in our hands with skill and with grace that we can help cut people's minds free. Uh, As your your agents, as as you send us forth to do this work, give us the ability to communicate clearly these truths to set minds free that this world will be enlightened with the knowledge of your character and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.